The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. At, um, at the Buddhist monastery where I first did some extended practice, um, one of the things I loved was that there was a poem that was um, written outside the meditation hall. And the poem um, said something like, uh, life is fleeting, quickly passing. Um, Great is the matter of birth and death. Awake, awake, each one. Don't waste this life. Life is fleeting, quickly passing. Great is the matter of birth and death. Awake, awake, each one. Uh, Do not waste this life. And it was written in black paint on a wooden board. And the significance of that was that um, to call the monks to meditation, one of the monks, their, their, their job, was to hit this board with a wooden mallet. And you first hear it, and if you're not kind of familiar with it, it sounds kind of like a woodpecker or something. And then you sort of notice it has a pattern. You know, first it's just a bop, bop. You know, what was that? And then it goes a little faster, bop, bop, bop. Then it goes a little faster, bop. And then it goes, pop, 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 pop. <laughs> okay, <laughs> time for meditation. <laughs> but there's something um, I loved about the um, this very direct connection, and the symbolism of this reminder of impermanence bringing us to meditate, you know, bringing us to practice. Um, so, so this morning, what I, what I thought would be, was to say a few words about um, impermanence, about this um, truth of what the Buddha called um, truth of our conditioned existence, that that things change. Um, there's a story that goes that um, a student asked Suzuki Roshi, can you sum up the Buddhist teaching in one word right now? <laughs> and he said, everything changes. <laughs> and he said, that's two words. But it's one word in Japanese. <laughs> but you know, something about change, transiency, um, maybe is, is the fundamental fact of, of existence that in life, you know, in life we come to terms with this. And then in meditation practice, um, 
it's been said that um, one way to characterize Vipassana practice is that we're refining our perception of change. You know, so it's one thing to, you know, it's a little bit of a sort of, ordinary understanding or it's obvious or something that, okay, yeah, if, you know, everything changes. Today's Tuesday, tomorrow will be Wednesday, the sun comes up, the sun goes down. Um, and then there's another there's another way of seeing this, seeing it in a, in a practice um, so so clearly, so deeply, opening our hearts to this truth um, that has the capacity to free us. It has the capacity to um, bring calm, to bring peace, to bring beauty. Um, so, um, and then there's this, um, so this connection between Dharma practice and impermanence. And it's not, it's not a coincidence that many of us are, maybe are drawn to practice due to some encounter with impermanence. Um, one of the sort of the founder of the Soto Zen school was, was, a, was a, a monk and a, a teacher called Dogen. And Dogen traced his interest in spiritual life in in meditative inquiry and in understanding truth to the loss of his mother when he was very young. And that set him kind of on a search. Um, We know from the story of the Buddha who was, um, we're told, a prince and who was in a very protected, maybe overprotected childhood. Maybe we would say today that his they were helicopter parents or something. <laughs> I try not to be a helicopter parent. Um, but as a parent of young children, I can really identify with this wish to sort of protect my children and, and, and keep them safe. Um, and so as, as a young man, a, a child, as a teenager, um, the the person who would become the Buddha was was said to be very protected, and he had never come into contact with death. He had never come into contact with with even people who were um, quite old and sick and suffering. And then one day he ventured out, as you know, I guess teenagers do. He took the equivalent of I don't know the subway to. Um, to the city, and he 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 encountered um, the personification of old age, sickness, and death. You know, a, a, a very old person who was having trouble just just moving, just walking. Someone who was very sick, who was clearly that their body was breaking down. And, and a corpse. And this, this jolted, jolted him. You know, there was something that it awoke deep 
deep inside of him, it's like, oh, he's coming into contact with truth, coming into contact with the nature of things, the nature of how things are, and wanting to really understand that, wanting to understand what, you know, what is this and how can I live in the face of this truth? Um, is it possible to um, be free in the world of impermanence? You know, so that was sort of his quest. Um, and one of, the, one of the core practices or reflections for Theravada monks um, is reminding ourselves that um, the nature of this body is to change, is to, is to, is to fall apart, is to, so, you know, so there's these, these reflections. Um, I am of the nature to get sick. I have not gone beyond sickness. I'm of the nature to grow old. I have not gone beyond aging. And I'm of the nature to die. I'm not, I've not gone beyond death. And um, in a way, this can sound a little gloomy. <laughs> you know, especially if we don't, if there's nothing if it doesn't seem like there's anything that can replace things of the world, you know, it's just, you know, everything changes, get used to it. Um, <laughs> but it's, but the people, but it's very interesting. I mean, it should, it should make us wonder that those who have contemplated this, devoted themselves to contemplating this, to studying this, to understanding this truth, to opening their hearts to this truth, um, are anything but gloomy, are anything but depressed. You know, there's something in meeting this truth that um, helps the mind to let go, that helps, um, that helps settle us in a certain way and open us and free us. Um, and so, you know, so this basic truth is that whatever arises ceases. You know, whatever, whatever, anything at all that we can experience is something that's conditioned, that comes into being through causes and conditions, and that comes apart through causes and conditions. Um, whatever appears by its very nature must disappear, you know? And um, even though this is, you know, impermanence, you know, change, it's just this, I, one, so often we associate impermanence with a, with, with a sense of loss, and and I think it's 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 very true that when we open ourselves to impermanence, um, there is 
usually a profound world of suffering that comes along with losing what's dear to us. Um, I don't know if you've heard about this event, but tomorrow night in San Francisco at um, Grace Cathedral, there is a symposium on old age sickness and dying uh, sponsored by the San Francisco Zen Center. And it's quite an interesting um, event. Um, One of the speakers is a relatively young woman whose husband um, was Paul Kalanithi. You might have heard of him. He, He wrote this book, which has become a bestseller, called When Breath Becomes Air. And he was a young uh, neurosurgeon in training at Stanford Hospital, Stanford Medical Center, who um, developed terminal lung cancer, you know, being just in his mid-30s. And, um, you know, was... Many people found his story quite poignant due to a number of factors, but that he had sort of devoted the 10, 15 years of his life to this very intensive, involved, intricate training, you know, to do brain surgery. And then had risen sort of to become the chief resident, sort of top of his class at this, you know, great school and great hospital. And just about to sort of begin his life, begin his career and and bring his skills um, to help people. And then he himself became very sick and he himself became a patient and navigating through that process. And um, he's also a very uh, literary, uh, poetic person. So, so his, his book is this, just this very poignant, lovely meditation on impermanence, on life and death. And I went to school with him um, so it had this other, has this other dimension for me of someone I know, you know, someone who um, was my peer in a certain way and friend in a certain way. So, um, so his wife uh, is now sort of carrying on the, the mantle of his work and, and, and touring and, and, and talking about the book. And it's beautiful. She's also a doctor. And she talks about her own journey in, um, in this encounter with, with, with the sort of um, the fragility of life. Um, one of the things that I found very poignant about their story was that after Paul was diagnosed with cancer, but before you know, before he got very sick or, or before it was, it, was, it was totally clear what was going to happen, they decided to have a baby. And, and, and she asked him, you know, he said to her, this needs to be your choice because most likely I won't be around to raise this, raise this child. And then she said, well, no, you need to decide because... Um, don't you think this will make it more difficult for you um, to die, to to leave behind a child? 
and, and I'm always moved by his response when he said, um, I hope it does. I hope it makes it more difficult. You know, I hope, um, because that will, that will mean that it's, that it's meaningful. That will mean that it's, you know, um, I want to care, you know, this, 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 this idea. Um, and in talking about this, this event where she's going to speak tomorrow, I read that she said that one of the lessons she's got from this whole experience um, has been rather than focusing on raising a child, and they have a little girl who's, I think, maybe three years old now, um, rather than focusing on raising a child who is happy and successful, it makes her more interested to raise a child who is compassionate and who is resilient, you know, who is resilient, who's um, adaptable in the face of change, you know, and, and what, what better gift to give to a, a child, to a person. Um, so she's going to be speaking. And then the, the panelists are all just really great. The, the, the other panelist is a woman, a physician named Grace Daman. I don't know if, if any of you know Grace or have heard, know who she is. She, um, she's a medical doctor who began one of the first AIDS hospices in San Francisco in the 80s. And for many years, she has lived at Green Gulch Farm, which is a Zen center in, in Marin. And she and her partner about uh, 20 years ago adopted a a baby who was HIV positive and who also had um, cerebral palsy, I think, and, and then have raised her. And then about five years ago, you know, so this would all, you know, her life story would already sort of qualify her as being immersed in the world of impermanence and suffering and, and practice and um, compassion, compassionate practice. And, and then about five years ago, she had driven from Marin into San Francisco to pick up her daughter who went to a, a special high school in the city. And they were driving back to Marin on the Golden Gate Bridge. And um, if you know how the Golden Gate Bridge is, where there's traffic that's sort of, you know, that's going in both directions. Um, and someone going in the opposite direction, uh, it seems like he fell asleep or he lost consciousness for, for, for just a brief moment, but was driving a truck. And his truck um, drifted over into oncoming traffic and, and, and collided into Grace's car you know, in her small little car. And um, it was probably one of the worst auto accidents that's happened on, on the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, her daughter was okay. Mac, the dog, was fine. But Grace, who was driving, was... Um, she, you know, basically her... 
her, her, her body was, suffered quite extensive. I think there was something like, there, there was almost like they couldn't find a bone in her body that wasn't broken. You know, she, um, and she was in a coma and it, and it was in the first few weeks, it was unclear if she was gonna make it. Um, And then she, she underwent something like 13 or 15 surgeries. Um, but she, she survived the accident. She went through a very lengthy rehabilitation process. Um, I believe she's mostly in a, in a wheelchair right now, but she's, she's much more functional than they ever thought she would be. Um, and she's even gone back to work as a physician and, and started a pain clinic at uh, Laguna Honda. And it's very moving to see her, to see Grace in, as now a person with disabilities in a wheelchair. And a lot of her patients are in wheelchairs and have disabilities. So she's found a way to, to sort of um, carry on with her life and her work and, and with this tremendous um, spirit of resiliency um, and tremendous suffering. Um, so she's going to be speaking tomorrow night. And there's a, there's a film, a documentary that was made about her life, about her recovery, especially, which is called, I think it's called States of Grace. Um, but it, it's very beautiful. And then in parts of the film, she ta- you know, and she just is like, this really sucks. You know, <laughs> you know, she's, you know, she's so honest and she's so, if she wants to be, um, she says that in, at one point in the movie, it feels like I've lost my best friend, you know, in losing her body, in losing the functioning of her body. Um, and, um, but to watch how she's practiced with this, how she's sort of come to terms with this new reality and and she, and she has a line in the movie where she says what she's learned coming through this and it's that, that nothing lasts, you know. Happiness doesn't last, suffering doesn't last, great joy, great sorrow, great pain, great difficulty, nothing, none of it lasts. It's all changing and it's all beautiful. You know, this, this beauty that she's um, been able to open, open up to, open into um, through this encounter with impermanence. And so, So, so one of the ways we tend to experience impermanence is through loss, through suffering. Um, but I think it's also important to remember that impermanence is is what also was what enables life. You know, it what it's what enables growth. It's what enables change. The Buddha said, "Without impermanence, there can be no path." You know, there can be there can be no existence without impermanence. Um, 
no birth. Um, and one of the key insights of the Buddha, of Buddhist practice, is that impermanence itself is sort of neutral. You know, the, the world of impermanence itself doesn't in itself bring suffering. But it's when we misperceive it, when we misunderstand, when we take for what's impermanent to be permanent, cling to it, hold on to it, resist it, deny it, that's, that's where the suffering comes in. So when we can relate to impermanence without clinging, you know, with, with, with opening our hearts, with full acceptance, um, no, we op- not only do we open to um, the freedom that the Buddha talks about, the, the joy, the calmness, but, but really the beauty the beauty, I, the beauty of existence. Um, I feel like the Japanese have a a wonderful, um, especially Japanese Buddhism, Zen Buddhism. But even in the whole of Japanese culture, there's this appreciation of the beauty of change, the beauty of impermanence. One of the ways this is um, in the culture, in the in the psyche of of the Japanese is through uh, cherry blossoms, this cherry blossom season. I don't know if you've ever been in Japan or have come to the, the Japanese um, gardens to watch the cherry blossoms bloom. But in Japan, at least, there is about one week of the year where it's probably hu- literally hundreds of thousands of cherry trees across Japan all bloom at about the same time. And it's sort of a national event. The, on, the, on the evening news, they have a cherry blossom forecast. You know, when they're, they're okay, they're exp- you know, the weather is going to be like this, and it's, it's a little bit warmer this year, so the, the blossoms are going to open about three days ahead of last year's. You know, and the, you know, it's a really big event. And you kind of, you know, when I first got to Japan, I thought, well, okay, you know, this is this is interesting, and then when when it starts to happen, it, when it starts to this just this gorgeous pink, red, pink everywhere in the sky, everywhere, and people are just I don't know what's more moving is it's just to see the the the, the these beautiful blossoms and just, you know, in the parks and on the roads and along the rivers, the trees along the rivers, or it's to see people who you wouldn't think, like businessmen wearing suits and having, you know, often they're smoking a cigarette and cause a lot of people smoke in Japan and have, and have their briefcases, but they just stop and gazing, gazing at the blossoms, you know. Um, and so it's, it's considered this, this very elemental um, form of beauty. And a big part of their beauty is their transience, is the fleeting nature of the blossoms. Because they open, and there's about two or three days when the trees, the blossoms are in full bloom. 
and then they and then they start to fall and then they start to die and and there's different phases of the cherry blossoms because once they once they start to fall to 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 fall off the trees it's another kind of beauty that and it's actually our favorite time because it's like maybe three or four days after the, the full blossom and it's still spring in Japan and it's still a little bit cold and it's still a little windy. So there can be a big gust of wind like and then we'll blow the blossoms off the trees and just in the air. They're just everywhere. And it's like, oh my God. You know, it's like the whole sky is 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 full of these pink blossoms. And then they're and then they're on the ground. And then the ground is just covered with petals and the rivers are covered with pink petals flowing. And it's just, you know, it is beautiful. And it is, um, so there's this appreciation of this, that, 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 that its beauty is bound up with its transience. With, with you know, we can't hold on to it. You can't... Um, So I wanted to say a little bit about how we, ways of rela- relating to impermanence. Um, one of the interesting things about practice, maybe one of the paradoxes of practice is that the more agitated and restless and scattered are, we are, our minds are, the more things experience take on a solidity. You know, it's like, this is the way it is. This is the way it always has been. Um, so things seem permanent. The, the, the more, you know, the more our mind is moving, things seem permanent. In the same way, the more calm we are, the more quiet, the more settled, the more still, the more silence we can tune into, it's actually the more we're able to perceive change, the more we're able to perceive impermanence. And one of the great ways to, to, to notice this in our lives is in relationships. You know, there's a certain way of, especially people who are close to us, um, it's like we see them as, as, oh, that's how they are, that's how they always will be, you know, especially if, if, if we're, you know, agitated or, or, or irritated or something. And it's a wonderful gift to another person to um, be calm enough and be clear enough that we're not seeing them through the filters of our own concepts and our own perceptions. And that in this, without even saying anything to the other person, it creates a space where someone can change, you know, and someone can actually grow and be different and respond differently. If it's like, oh, I know how you're going to respond. I don't even need to tell you about that because I know you always have the same reaction. You know, that's one way of being. And then the other way is to sort of 
is, is yeah, the, this, this openness, which is connected to our own stillness. And it, it gives another person the opportunity to change. Um, and it gives, our, it gives us the chance to drop below the concepts of, of who that other person is. Um, one of my teachers has this, I mean, it's sort of become a famous saying of his, where he says, like, your idea of your mother is not your mother. <laughs> you know, it was kind of, oh, yeah, right. You know, it was like, um, and so our own, our own stillness allows us to perceive change, to perceive impermanence. And when we're able to somehow drop below concepts, there's something about concepts and thinking that is sort of unnaturally solid, unnaturally permanent. It's like my idea about something doesn't necessarily need to change in the way that the actual thing is changing. And, and this is a cause of a lot of our suffering because our thinking and our ideas haven't changed, but reality has moved on, reality has changed. My idea about how my body should look, that hasn't changed, but my body has changed, my body is changing. And so this disconnect, and when we're able to um, drop, drop down, drop below the level of thinking, of concepts, just through simple mindfulness, through simple you know, sitting and connecting to our experience in a very simple way, um, then it, it's, it's quite amazing. It becomes much easier to perceive change to perceive impermanence. And then it's like that becomes the, the, the lens the, through which we see, rather than being so focused on the specifics of my experience, of the specifics of my life, we start to tune in to the facet of experience that's always changing. It's like, oh, everything is changing. And, and, and the suggestion here, the request of Dharma practice is that this dimension of experience is very powerful. It's powerful medicine. And there's a value in learning to tune into it, to tune into the sense of change. Without, you know, without anything else, without any other, just, just noticing change. Noticing change in our meditation and noticing change in our life. You know, noticing how mind states come and go and change. Our moods change. Emotions change. Just remembering the changing nature of our moods can be very freeing. It's like I can be so angry in, an, in a moment, in an instant, but if there's just that also, that understanding that this is going to change, there can be a, oh, all right. You know, there's just this, this ease, this ease with the difficult emotion, this ease with, you know, it's like, we know this is gonna change. This is also gonna change. Um, I just thought I would end with this poem because this, this is, what I think a very nice way of 
capturing an appreciation of change, an appreciation of impermanence that is not negative, that's not, that's not suffering, that actually on the contrary is, um, is, is joyful. It's like when there, when there isn't resistance, when we're not um, ignoring this truth or um, wishing it were otherwise, uh, w- wishing it were otherwise. Um, so this is called deepening the wonder. This is just a part of the poem, but okay, deepening the wonder. Death is a favor to us, but our scales have lost their balance. The impermanence of the body should give us great clarity, deepening the wonder in our senses and eyes of this mysterious existence we share and are surely just traveling through. If I were in the tavern tonight, I would buy freely for everyone in this world because our marriage with the cruel beauty of time and space cannot endure very long. Death is a favor to us, but our minds have lost their balance. The miraculous existence and impermanence of form always makes the awakened ones laugh and sing the miraculous existence and impermanence of form always makes the awakened ones laugh and sing. This, this wonderful lightness that can come when we open to how things are. Um, we don't need them to be otherwise. Um, it's said that the first student of the Buddhas who was enlightened, who was fully awakened, when he described what he, what he understood in his awakening, what he understood in his enlightenment, it, he didn't describe fireworks and, you know, earthquakes and, and flashes of lightning. And he, he said that he understood that whatever arises has the nature to cease. Whatever arises has the nature to end, to pass away. Whatever appears must disappear. Um, And then in the last words of the Buddha, he said to have said something like, all conditioned things are impermanent. Strive on with diligence. Everything without exception is uncertain, is impermanent. Um, keep going. Keep, keep, keep looking at this. Keep, 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 keep um, keep our hearts open to, to understand this truth and, and let it, let it deeply free us. Thank you very much. And then, any questions? Yeah. yeah. 
don't dispute that fact, but, but if impermanence, what if impermanence is impermanent? Then where do you go from there? <laughs> you found the loophole, right? <laughs> Does everyone hear the question? What if impermanence is impermanent? Um, one time I asked a teacher in Japan, I said, Every, if everything is impermanent, what is the one thing that... No, I said, if everything is changing, what is the one thing that doesn't change? And he said, impermanence. <laughs> and it's a great question. And it's, this is sort of the, it's really the heart of, it's the heart of the matter. What does it mean to be free in the world of impermanence? What does it mean to be happy in the world of, that everything is changing? What does it mean to be safe? And is it about looking for something that is unchanging, that doesn't, that's not born, that's, that doesn't die? In a way, yes, but maybe in a way that what is unchanging, what we're looking for, turns out to be not something apart from impermanence, but is this full opening to impermanence itself. You know, so like some, t- some people, not so much in our tradition, but in other traditions, sometimes people say impermanence is the Buddha, or impermanence is Buddha nature. Um, that it's, it's not about getting to some particular state, you know, that doesn't change, but it's about realizing that all there is is change. And then wherever we are, we're there. You know, it's like there, there's, there was a, something I didn't, I didn't if I, oh, I, I'll just read you this. I, di- I, I didn't have time to include it, but this is um, much more poetically than I can say. This is Ryokan, who was a Japanese monk and who was, who was famous for being a deeply awakened person. He probably lived about two or three hundred years ago, being a deeply awakened monk. But he wanted nothing to do with formal temple life or being a formal teacher. He traveled around, he played with children, he was very, you know, free spirit. And, and so this is, maybe, maybe this approaches this. He says, walking along, I followed the branching stream to its source, but reaching the headwaters left me stunned. That's when I realized the true source isn't a particular place you can reach. So now, wherever my staff sets down, I just play in the flowing waters, eddies, and swirl. You know, so. uh, Yeah, yeah. Would you get the mic so you can? If if it isn't a contradiction, it, it seems that the one thing that might be permanent in our human experience would be discipline. 
that if we find that discipline of how we flow with the swirling eddy. But the question that I have, that's my conjecture on your question. The question that I have, though, is that if the nature of life is constant change, how in that context do we appreciate the natural order of the universe? Ah, beautiful, yeah. Um, just to talk to your second part first. The, the nature of things is, is constant change, or is, is impermanent, but very importantly, it's not random change. You know, so this is sort of the, um, part of this insight into impermanence is also an insight into conditionality, cause and effect. If this happens, then this happens. You know, if the clouds, you know, are full and come, then it will rain. You know, if there's rain, there had to be clouds. You know, so, so it's, it's, um, there is, um, within the world of impermanence, said to be a lawful sort of unfolding of things based on causes and conditions. You know, and that's one of the things that makes Dharma practice possible. It's like, if things were just totally random, changing it, and it's that, it's, so, it's sort of not really possible to live or to even have a healthy, I think to have a healthy psyche, you know, and, and for people who perceive, who can't perceive order, you know, that can be very, very disruptive to, you know, because it's just like, there's no way of navigating life. There's no way of moving in the world without some sense of um, cause and effect. And so it's, it's a great question. And it's, one of the, it's, it's really one of the key things that we wake up to is that if, if I do this, this tends to happen. If I, if I train the mind and the heart in this way, like you talked about with discipline and with openness and with care and compassion, and um, then this happens. And then this, you know, things, things start to shift in this way and I start to perceive things this way. If I live with, um, for whatever that means to me, whatever the, how, how meaningful that is, a sense of ethics, a sense of integrity, um, that affects my mind in this way, affects my heart in this way. When I do things that are against my values, that affects me in other ways. You know, I live with regret, I live with shame, I live with, and so we start to just see for ourselves this, you know, that it, it, it really is not random, you know. Which is not to say that things that seem random don't happen, you know. We're subject to causes and conditions. So like the woman who, this, this woman, Grace, who is, you know, in this car accident, I'm sure in her life that felt completely unexpected, completely random. 
And we can look and say, well, there were causes and conditions. One of the causes is the bridge didn't have a barrier. Now, and due to her accident, they pushed and lobbied, and now there is a, a movable barrier on the Golden Gate Bridge. So hopefully this particular kind of accident can never happen again. And it, it, it moves, and it's something that should have probably been in place a long time ago, but they finally had the, found the money in the budget and had the will. And had the, so that was one of the conditions that made it possible for this accident to happen. And of course, there were others. They had to be, she had to be going there at the same time. And the person had to have this medical condition where he fell asleep. And, you know, all these things had to be into place. So it, it looked random. It's not exactly random. But, um, so, yeah, yeah. So, So I find that on a daily basis, I'm intensely aware of the fleeting nature of things. And um, I also find that um, when I'm rigorous in meditation, I can be in a very neutral place and more curious and things feel more comfortable. But as soon as I take a step, so I, I'm, I, I do some art, which is kind of a metaphor, really. As soon as I choose to do or be, then uh, there's more suffering. So it doesn't seem possible to stay in a completely neutral, contemplative state. One has to act. And as soon as one acts, then there's opposites. There's the potential to cling or to have some identity that's going to be, there's going to be some suffering involved when letting go. It's almost like we have no choice, but we either have to stay totally neutral or we have to choose to put ourselves at risk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody heard that. Um, yeah, one of the, um, maybe a little bit more so in Zen than in, in the Theravada, but there's a, a strong emphasis on um, awakening as action and as an expression. So as an expression of our understanding. So it's not, that, and not, it's not enough. It's beautiful to stay in, you know, a place like you talk about, a neutral place or a place where we're just seeing, we're just seeing change and we're, you know, we're just flowing with it. But, but yeah, we, we can't stay there too because, it, because in a way that itself is, is a conditioned state itself is impermanent. And so it's, it's very beautiful, it's important, it's useful, but it's considered not quite it. It's actually about acting in the world and um, maybe it's about also being willing to take on suffering, but it's knowing that we are. You know, rather than we're at the mercy of it and we're, we're ignoring, we're ignorant of the nature of things. I mean, this is sort of like the, de- the decision to form any close human relationship, knowing that things are impermanent, you know, and then you can, you can have this, well, why bother? Why, you know, why? If you're just going to, why have children? Why um, fall in love? Why, you know, why care? 
because it's all, it's all empty, it's all impermanent, right? It's just, you know, um, and that's, I think in that case, there is an intellectual understanding of impermanence. But when, when we really, when it comes into our heart and we really get it, we really get that all of it, including all of us, is impermanent. Um, then it's like this, this th- there's a sense of wonder, you know, this poignancy, this beauty that it's like, oh, it's like I look at my children and they're, or people who have teenagers tell me, it's like, you know, really savor these moments when they're young and adorable. <laughs> you know, it's because <laughs> there's going to be a time when they're not. And, and it's like, it's so precious and we try to grasp it. It just like, it's like water through your fingers. It's, it's so, um, so a big part of this practice, which maybe I didn't emphasize so much is, is tuning into how we are with change and what are the ways that we're with it that bring suffering and that sort of make us, you know, that that um, close us down, that contract us? And is there a way of being with it in the world that's still, that's still open, that's still, you know, that acknowledges the truth of it and, but, but is willing to sort of engage um, you know, with open eyes? Okay, so thank you very much.